0: Sorry for singing it again, folks. I just felt like belting out a tropical, jungly tune just for the fun of it. Yes, it's me, your unfriendly cul-de-sac trash man, Andy Roberts, here with another infectious serving of the Nasty Pasty podcast. I'm rolling these episodes out like a crap-ton of dough and flowering them with filth ready to bake up a batch of bad horror movies, all from the video Nasty Ages, where dealers were frequently burned at the stake for witchcraft. Not really. Just having some films on their shop shelves was their crime. Up to two years in prison was the time. Or sometimes a £25,000 fine. We don't bandy about Mary Berry recipes or prue leaf favourites. We cover grimy, grim horrors that weren't significant enough to garner an official search warrant for their seizure and of the official Video Nasties they can be found being chatted about on other podcasts, like the Video Nasties podcast, or the Strange and Deadly show. So go on, go run off with them to a brewery far from the rat race, see if I care. But if you're still hanging on here though, we can delve in straight into today's duo of disgracefulness. So today's episode is carrying on with the pseudo-theme from last week, and while we have covered cannibal films before, we're now on to pseudo-cannibal movies. So these two films both have directors who've done cannibal films before, and they have a few elements common to the cannibal genre, but they simply aren't true man-eating horrors. There's Diamonds of Kilimanjaro from auteur Jess Franco, and there's also Cut and Run from Ruggiero Diodato. So both of these directors had cannibal movies on the official nasties list, with Franco toting Devil Hunter and Cannibals, which is also known as White Cannibal Queen, while Diodato bore Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal, which is also known as Last Cannibal World. But the films we're covering today came after these previous cannibal films, and they're almost like thematic evolutions of their cannibal work the same imperialistic greedy Westerners, the same curious natives, the same sweltering jungles, but just none of the savage gut-munching and gratuitous animal suffering. So compared to the late Cannibals episode, whose entries were in 1985 and 1988, Diamonds of Kilimanjaro was released in 1983, and Cut and Run was in 1985 just before Massacre in Dinosaur Valley. So these films are kind of like the in-betweeners, shall we say, of the genre, after it was considered popular and before it actually became less popular. Now these two movies can teach all sorts of things too, like it's perfectly fine to live in a jungle with your permanently topless daughter and white-hating natives, blowing your cover is worth it for going out for fast food, and when eloping to help a drug operation in the rainforest, you should always bring your trusty Mickey Mouse sweater. So with that in mind, let's swing from a vine and dive headfirst into the first of our films this week, which is Diamonds of Kilimanjaro. A plane carrying a young girl called Diana and her father crashes in the jungle while some natives look on. Upon them exiting the vehicle, the natives bow down in worship. Several several years later, some men, led by explorer Peyton scour the jungle and encounter the natives, only to be held hostage and whipped by one of them called Noba. Diana, now grown into a young woman, swings in and saves the man, explaining that he'll die if he returns to scavenge diamonds from the area. Peyton and his fr- partner Fred visit Diana's mother Hermione, and they inform her of their findings, who asks her nephew Math- Matthew and his girlfriend Lita to go along with the expedition. Fred and Peyton, however, seem more interested in scoring diamonds from the area, while Matthew and Lita plan to discard Diana if they find her, in order to be the ones to inherit Hermione's fortune. In the village, Diana implores her father, who's now the village chief, to curb Noba's rebellious behaviour, but he refuses. The explorers meet with their guide Rofo, who quickly takes charge of the operation. Lita conspires with Fred to ensure that Diana never returns, and she sleeps with him to seal the deal. After Peyton fires upon one of the natives, the tribe is alerted and led by Noba into scouting for the intruders. Diana spies Lita swimming near a river, and is about to be eaten by a crocodile until she is saved by Fred. When the group moves on, they hear Peyton being beheaded by Noba, who's caught up with them and has vengeance on her mind. Diana chastises her for killing him and reports it to her father. Rofo gets irritated at Fred and threatens to leave, prompting Lita to inadvertently reveal that their intentions are not pure. Rofo muses about helping them dump Diana, but later disagrees, after which Noba and her tribesmen attack the group, only to be fended off by their guns – causing Lita to suddenly become aware of the danger that they're in. Rofo decides to finally leave the group, causing Fred to attempt to execute him. After beating Fred unconscious, however, Rofo attempts to escape, but is shot with a poisoned arrow by Noba. Diana rescues Fred and feeds him, learning that her aunt and uncle, Lita and Matthew, are actually here to bring her back. Massively curious about sex due to spying on Fred and Lita, Diana convinces Fred to have sex with her. Discovering Fred and Rofo gone, Lita and Matthew encounter Diana, who takes them to her father, who refuses to let them take Diana away and safeguards his secret treasure, a stash of rare diamonds. Noba convinces the chief that the strangers are after the diamonds and he consents to let her kill Lita and Matthew. After finding their bodies, Fred resolves to steal the diamonds, only to be captured by Noba and her angry mob. Diana saves him once more from death, but disappointed in his behaviour, she sends him to leave with the stones. He is shot, however, by the chief, causing Diana to shed tears at the world that she almost had a taste of. At the film's end, Noba reveals to the chief that she's always hated him, and only kept him around to give her people stability, citing that their old gods are dead, and Diana's arrival gave them new purpose.
1: Who are you? My name is Britt I've been a hunter all my life in these colonies. This is my friend, Peyton, Man. ma'am. Ma'am? Hey, Excuses, please, for disturbing you. I'm sorry. Exactly where did you see my little daughter? And if you try to put one over on me, I'll have you both whipped. Why should I? Listen here, lady. I've earned a pretty good living as hunter and guide. I'm no highway robber, nor a petty thief, as you say, nor a crook. I'm a hunter and guide, and so is my buddy here. It's a tough job, but we do it well. We're both honest men. If you don't trust us, ask her around. So you're hunters? Yes, ma'am. I'm the one who saw the girl. Where? In Maury County. When? Last month. What makes you think it's her? I'll tell you. No other girl was ever reported missing in these parts. She's 18 and she speaks our language. However, I'm not the one who talked with her. He did. So why isn't he talking? I'll organize a search. So you'll be dealing with me. Do you have any objection? Fred is the best man for the job, lady. Is that so? Yes, and the only reason I'm tagging along is because your daughter saved my life. Let me hear the rest of it. We're going to need a lot of men, a full-fledged expedition, the works. It's the only way we can get in there and come out alive. You'll finance it. We need trucks and porters, lots of equipment. I may need another man who knows how to handle himself in the bush. It costs money, and so do I. What guarantee have I got? None. We don't even know if we'll come out alive. But if we do, it'll be with your daughter. Providing it's her, of course. We'll do our damn
0: best. Any good old Franco fan, which I have to admit I am a little bit at heart, knows that in his large reservoir of work there's a few choice treasures that have withstood the water and remained as shiny and brilliant as ever. But unfortunately, some of them in this Franco lake were wrought from pretty crap alloys to begin with, and they've suffered severe rusting and rot over time. There's quite a lot of films that Franco did that have this kind of tone, not particularly well produced or thought out, and as a result they're a little bit boring and dull to boot. I don't think Diamonds of Kilimanjaro is quite in the same category as Jess's worst, but it's got a lot of problems regardless. We can find out why by kind of getting into the backstory of Eurocine, which is the production company behind this movie. Now, Eurocine started business in the 1930s, fronted by a Frenchman called Marius Lesour, who was heavily involved in the carnival industry and equipment rental. He took full ownership of the company in around 1957, and he began producing films to compete with the rapidly changing film market at the turn of the 60s. Now, being an itinerant traveller, he brought these ad-hoc elements and the cavalier practices to his filmmaking, and he began co-productions with other European directors, especially from Spain. His son, Daniel Lesur, became part of the business in the 60s, just as hardcore pornography had become legalised in the European market, which meant that the company soon changed tactic and they turned to making horror movies and fantasy films. By the 1980s, EuroCine had several entries out on the VHS market, a lot of which came from Jess Franco. And because of the founding principles of the company, EuroCine are well known by modern exploitation buffs as a company who cut corners to say the least. A lot of their films share footage to cut down on the cost of shooting. A lot of the cast and crew are retained for another production to effectively make two films for the price of one and there's a severe lacklustre attention to any sort of continuity and polish. Several EuroCine productions ended up on the video nasties list, namely Devil Hunter, Women Behind Bars, Cannibal Terror, Cannibals, Oasis of the Zombies, and Zombie Lake. Now that we know a little bit about EuroCine, it's easy to spot straight away that this film is a EuroCine effort – I thought my copy of the film was defective in the opening sequence, as the sound of a plane engine kept going very choppy, as if the film was struggling to process the sound properly. It wasn't until someone spoke that I realised that this effect was intentional, to signify that the plane is failing. And just as I recovered from this, I was treated to one of the most noticeable jump cuts I'd ever seen in a film. The plane descends, and suddenly it becomes a different horizon shot, with a very large explosion. Having started out this way, I wasn't really hopeful for this film, really. Especially soon after, Lena Ramey is bedridden and supposed to be an old lady, but she's clearly younger than her nephew, who's played by Olivier Mathieu. Thankfully, this awkward start soon got much more bearable once the jungle aspect of the film started, though by the end of it, the film was just a little bit still underwhelming. In terms of plot and structure, the film is pretty much a straightforward cannibal film, minus the flesh-eating. There's some Western characters who go into the jungle to look for the lost daughter of their employer, some of them out to score diamonds from the region, they encounter some wild animals, they're attacked by natives, and eventually all killed by said natives when they prove to be untrustworthy and deceitful. This is a fairly typical plot structure for a cannibal movie, with the only novel difference being the focus on Diana's character, who is sort of a female take on Tarzan, and really the only interesting character among the lot. Compared to Lena, the other white goddess character in Franco's other cannibal film, Cannibals, Diana is actually portrayed as having a personality, with some curiosity in regards to her supposed civilised behaviour, a confidence in her abilities to traverse through the jungle without aid, and also a moral compass that tells her that murder is bad. Part of this film's interest is the comparison between Diana and Noba, who's the more ruthless tribe priestess, who is snarling, spiteful and bloodthirsty. Compared to Diana, Noba has no qualms about killing, and she even considers it necessary for her tribe's honour. Even when the strangers are clearly benign, she convinces Diana's father that they're after the diamond treasure, and she slaughters Lita and Matthew without cause. By the film's conclusion, she's also shown to be a bit of a manipulator, knowing full well that Diana and her father are not gods, but using the image of them as a god as a means to exert control over her people. Unfortunately, that's where the interest in the characters ends. The rest of the rabble are kind of your standard exploitation fare, with Rofo being the macho arsehole who wants continuous control over the search party, Fred plays the very slightly conflicted jewel thief, Peyton's his grinning sidekick, Lita manages to fill the role of both a whining woman and a sultry seductress in one, while Matthew is your metaphorically impotent spoiled brat, who's plotting for his aunt's fortune, directly in contrast with Rofo and Fred's supposed machoness. Despite the largely cardboard characters, the film does pick up towards the last half an hour, but you do have to sit through some very tedious jungle shots and ass-aching wandering around and groaning from the Western characters. There are some scenes of animals stitched in from other films, and one of them is noticeably from 1962's Mondo Carne. Even the nudity becomes incidental after ten minutes, rendering Diana and Noba's nakedness rather unnoticeable after a while. For this similar reason, all the scenes of Lita screwing around with Fred are also very flat and unerotic. It's quite similar in Pace to Oasis of the Zombies, with all the good bits shoehorned into the end. And ultimately, Diamonds of Kilimanjaro is just a little too roughly humed to be as dazzling as the, t- as the title suggests. It's not as paralyzingly dull as something like Oasis of the Zombies, but it's not bloody moon good either. Protagonist Diana is played by German actress Katia Bennett, who'd previously appeared in Franco's film uh, Wicked Memoirs of Eugenie in 1980. Now, at the time of filming, Bennett was only 16, which can potentially cause some problems in today's world. While in European law, the age of consent is much lower in the US and the U- uh, UK, but the UK rightly has specific laws to prevent child exploitation in regards to indecency in films – The Protection of Children Act 1978 specifically prohibited any indecent images of children under the age of 16. Now, indecent, in terms of the law, is almost as unclear as obscene in terms of legal definition, as countless examples have made it quite clear that child nudity is not immediately indecent. Family photographs of babies in the bath are passed around Facebook without any sort of furore. 1968's version of Romeo and Juliet had a 15-year-old Olivia Hussey portraying the ill-fated girl with a few nude scenes, etc. And in 2003, the Sexual Offences Act raised this original definition of a child to anyone under the age of 18, which can affect films that have now been passed since 2003. Having said that, the film in question must be specifically exploitative in regards to the actor or actress. A more specific example is the 2001 British horror movie The Hole, which starred a 15-year-old Keira Knightley, who has a nude scene in it. Now, the nudity in Diamonds of Kilimanjaro, with regards to Biennett, isn't actually sexualised at all. Biennet is topless through most of the film, but none of the characters react to this, she's just simply nude. Like most of Franco's films, the nudity becomes forgettable anyway after ten minutes, and the actress certainly portrays her Tarzan-esque role with a confidence that's actually kind of believable, because she doesn't even react to her own nakedness as much as the other characters. One of Franco's other films, Love Letters of a Portuguese Nun, has a much more problematic context for its underage actress, and recently this was cut for its UK release for the problems detailed previously. Fred was played by Antonio Mayans, who'd been possibly the highest number of video nasties by one actor. The list goes Cannibal Terror, Cannibals, Oasis of the Zombies, Devil Hunter, Nightmare City and Zombie Lake. He also starred in the cult movies The House by the Edge of the Lake and Revenge in the House of Usher, and he continues to have a successful film career in Spain, with a movie in post-production for release in 2018 called The Bounty Killer. Aline Mess, who played the ruthless Noba, also portrayed the priestess in Cannibal Terror, which really shows just how EuroCine were sharing resources between their productions. Albino Graziani, who played Peyton, he also appeared in Oasis of the Zombies, as well as Mansion of the Living Dead, along with co-star Mary Carmen Nieto, who portrays the lascivious Lita. Olivier Mathieu played Matthew, and he'd previously been in Fraulein Devil, Hitler's Last Train, Cannibals, and also Cannibal Terror. Now, Lena Rome is probably one of the more recognisable faces. She was Franco's lover and muse for many years, and she also makes an appearance in this as the elderly Hermione, in some extremely unconvincing makeup. Now She'd been in tons of Franco films, such as The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, uh, Women Behind Bars, Caged Women, Cannibals, Oasis of the Zombies, and Mansion of the Living Dead. But in terms of the crew, there's very little information other than Franco himself filling in most of the roles, while Daniel LeSueur and his father Marius doing the producing. The only crew member of note is Ilona Kunisova and she worked on the film's inverted commas continuity, open bracket, ha-ha, close bracket. She's notable mainly because she had a part in most of EuroCine's features, like Oasis of the Zombies, Zombie Lake, Cannibals, Fräulein Devil, and Hitler's Last Train. The film had no cinema release anywhere in the world, the production was far too cheap, and EuroCine's methods were too focused on the video market for it to receive a proper theatrical release. Instead, the film was released on video in Spain, when EuroCine planned to export the film all over Europe. They started in France, but the film was rejected, so actor Olivier Mathieu shot several more sequences, adding to around 13 minutes of the film's runtime, and also excising some of the Spanish version's shots. This French version was ultimately not released in France, funnily enough, but it became the standard version for all territories outside of Spain. The film, though, is so obscure that it's had no VHS release in either the UK or the US, and it still has no release to this day in the UK. It does, however, have an uncut release in the US on DVD. And that was Diamonds of Kilimanjaro, the first of our movies this week. And the next film is Rogero Deodato's Cut and Run, which we'll now get on to. At an illegal cocaine operation in the jungle, a strange, primitive-looking man called Quecho leads a vicious attack on the people by natives, killing all of them and securing the cocaine for themselves. At an American airport, a suspicious lady passes security and enters a car with a fake baby filled with cocaine – Two journalists, Mark and Fran, park outside the home where the woman enters, go inside to expose the drug deal, only to encounter the entire household slaughtered, in a manner very similar to the butchery at the hands of Quecho. Speaking to her contact Fargus about the crime, one of similar cases all over America, he reveals that the Jim Jones massacre is in some way involved. She soon deduces that an associate of Jones's, a man called Brian Horn, is linked to the crimes and she sets out with Mark to find him, who's reported to be in the jungle, and they hitch a ride with a pilot called Tony while they're at it. At the jungle camp where the drugs are being processed, headed by Manuel and his right-hand man Vlado, worker Tommy becomes disillusioned after trying to flee the camp, while his friend Anna receives word that Mark and Fran are to be killed upon their arrival. Anna is raped by Manuel upon his arrival to the camp, after which Tommy implores her to escape with him later. Just as Tony's plane is closing in, Quecho attacks the camp, graphically disembowelling one of the guards before summoning his fellow natives. Manuel is decapitated and several of the guards are killed in horrific ways. Some of the natives attack Tommy and Anna, who are trying to signal Tony with fire. Upon landing, Tony is shot with poison darts, forcing Mark and Fran to hide in the plane overnight. In the morning, the pair film the resulting carnage from Quecho's attack, which only Anna seems to have survived. The threesome decide to hitchhike to a nearby village, while Tommy comes across Vlado in the jungle, tied to a primitive torture device which is pulling his legs apart. About to kill him in Mercy, Tommy is too late to prevent the device pulling him apart at the groin, and by nightfall, Quecho spies on Mark, Anna and Fran and scares them with a snake trap. During their broadcast the next day, Mark and Fran are suddenly shocked when Anna's dead body falls from a tree, riddled with darts and spikes, after which they are attacked by Quecho. He tries to drown them, but they seemingly kill him and continue on. Back in the city, Tommy's father meets with Fargus to get more information on his son's whereabouts, but Fargus is soon killed upon revealing where Vlado's camp is. Fran and Mark reach the village and reunite with Tommy, who's upset at hearing of Anna's demise. Narrowly avoiding death by crocodiles, the group obtain a boat and head downriver, only to get ensnared in a native trap. They're tied up and finally Brian Horn shows up, who condemns them for intruding on the lands and explains to his associate that he's going to kill them in the morning. Just as Tommy's father flies above camp, Horn opens fires on them only to be shot himself. Knowing of his impending death, Horn has his assistant decapitate him to achieve martyrdom and to strengthen his cult's faith. Using the resulting commotion to escape, the group hide in a seaplane while Tommy's father returns with backup, who bombard the camp and drive the natives away. Tommy reunites with his father while Fran and Mark sail away in the seaplane, only to be suddenly shocked when Quecho attacks them. Fran sprays him with a fire extinguisher and finally shoots him dead with an assault rifle, killing him once and for all and rendering the pair safe.
1: We're alive by a miracle. We've been hiding in the jungle all night. Dawn broke about two hours ago. I just Dawn broke about two hours ago. Since then, we've been looking for any signs of life. So far, all we found are corpses. Although a number of the victims haven't been horribly mutilated, most of them appear to have been killed with, I guess, uh, uh, blowgun darts. Our pilot was killed that way right in the cockpit. Needless
0: to say, we are grounded. Cut and Run is the last of Deodato's Jungle Trilogy, with Last Cannibal World and Cannibal Holocaust making up the two previous instalments. Unlike the previous two, Cannibalism is not featured at all, but it's no less savage and nasty in tone. It originated from a Wes Craven script entitled Marimba, and Craven was originally assigned to direct. However, some financing issues plagued the film and Craven was eventually dropped from the project, but the film script was retained by the producers. Deodato was eventually asked to make another Cannibal movie, but instead he found the script and decided to make the film that this script was based on. The screenplay underwent some rewrites by Italian maestro Dardano Sciacchetti and was renamed Inferno in Diretta, or in English, Straight to Hell. Filming began in 1984, and it was shot mainly on location in Venezuela, with the city shots set in Miami, Florida. And very rarely for an Italian film, the production was actually shot in direct English, mostly due to the large amount of American actors that were in the production. While the film is about a group of journalists caught in the middle of a a jungle drug war, the film nonetheless has many elements of cannibal films. There's the jungle setting, westerners who go into the jungle to find someone, imperialists exploiting the natives and resources, and some vengeful natives who strike back against the tyranny of their exploiters. Despite not being cannibalistic, the natives led by Quecho, played by a very effective Michael Berryman, are savage, ruthless, and not above torturing their victims with excruciating methods. Some of the film's strength comes from its intensely strong gore, which at times was a real surprise when it felt like it was going to be more action-heavy. We have a really graphic disembowelment, some machete decapitations, and in a highlight moment, a man is gruesomely torn in half from the groin outwards by a torture device. That scene in question was reportedly based on the images of the Vietnam War, according to Diodato. Some of these moments actually made me react out loud with how good they were staged, and it really helped to endear me to the film. By the end of it, I really enjoyed the film for its kind of mixed bag of goodness. The action is well-paced, the acting is particularly good for this genre, and the film is not too taxing on the brain. It's just pretty good mindless fun. The plot is not massively unique, and it has little snippings from other cannibal films. The character of Brian Horne is apparently an old acquaintance of Jim Jones, the infamous cult leader who killed all of his followers with poisoned Kool-Aid. This is not the first time that Jim Jones has inspired a film. The late Umberto Lenzi's cannibal film, Eaten Alive, also takes this character as a form of inspiration for the plot. Several drug gangs are killed by Quecho's men in the city, hearkening to the sometimes puzzling element of natives killing people in cities in the openings of cannibal films, such as the aforementioned Eaten Alive, but also Zombie Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox have this very similar scene. There's also a scene where the protagonists are attacked by crocodiles, and they have to fend them off with boat oars. But notably, no animal cruelty is present, very similar to Diamonds of Kilimanjaro and in typical italian style there's even a hysterical woman who's being slapped almost like every other italian movie going there's scenes of women being sexually assaulted and anna's character also gets raped now in the latter sequence however anna's nudity is not exploited in the same way that Deodato's other films may have depicted Instead, the main focus is actually on Anna's dissociation with what's happening to her, which is actually a relatively remarkable sensitive portrayal of what is actually a barbarous act that's usually exploited. Pretty much the only element that doesn't appear is the cannibalism, as well as a ham-fisted philosophical appraisal of the film's events, which we'd had previously with Cannibal Holocaust. Instead, the commentary is much better integrated into the film's plot, which is almost a warning about the dangers of journeying to remote parts of the world with adventure in mind, as well as the inherent threat in joining drug operations, as manufacture and packaging of drugs is something that's rarely experienced or covered in the news. Diodato also chooses to portray his journalist characters as relatively noble people who are simply trying to document what they can, and also save the son of their boss, Tommy. This is a big antithesis to the depraved lunatics of Cannibal Holocaust, who set up their own atrocious footage with their own vile behaviour. Leonard Mann, who played Mark, had appeared on the video nasty Night School in 1981, which was banned under its title Terror Eyes. He also appeared in 1979's The Humanoid by Aldo Lardo, as well as the later horror film Flowers in the Attic, which was based on the novel. Now, Lisa Blount, who played Fran, had appeared in the video Nasty, Dead and Buried, by Gary Sherman, as well as an Officer and a Gentleman the following year, in 1981, as well as Prince of Darkness. Blount sadly passed away, though, in 2010 from complications due to idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, which I believe is a disease that um, stops the blood from clotting properly. TV star Willie Ames, who also played Tommy, was reportedly a little bit aggressive on set, due to some personal problems that he was having outside of filming, trashing his hotel room on one particular day. And Richard Lynch played the villainous Brian Horn, who went to star on in the very Freddy Krueger-esque Bad Dreams, as well as having some bit roles in Alligator 2 The Mutation and Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. Still attached to the project from Wes Craven's involvement, cult star Michael Berryman played the very imposing Quecho. Now Berryman is almost instantly recognisable due to his unique appearance. He was born with hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, which has left him without sweat glands, hair, fingernails or teeth. Now, one of his first roles was in the Academy Award-winning One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Mike Milos Foreman, But he soon went on to achieve recognition for his role as the murderous Pluto in Wes Craven's video Nasty, The Hills Have Eyes. He even reprised this role in the much-maligned sequel, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. He also had a villainous role in 1991's The Giver, which was released here in the UK as Mutronics, the movie. And he'd go on to have multiple character roles in both TV and film. There's also Eric Lassell, who played the pimp Fargus. He'd gone to star in a variety of TV movies and shows before landing a role in the memorable psychological horror film Jacob's Ladder with Tim Robbins. He continues to have a successful TV career to this day, and he even made an appearance in the 2017 superhero film Logan. Now Laura Gempsa's husband, Gabrielle Tinti, who we've mentioned in a previous episode, he made an appearance as Manuel in this film, while Valentina Forte played the unfortunate Anna. Now Forte had previously appeared in Lamberto Barba's action film Blast Fighter before meeting Diodato and she struck up a romantic relationship with him. She appeared in Cut and Run while this relationship was going on and she also appeared in Diodato's later slasher film Body Count until their relationship ended in the late 80s. British actor John Steiner, who played the sub-antagonist Vlado, had appeared in multiple nefarious roles in Italian cinema since the 70s with some memorable appearances in Diodato's Waves of Lust, uh, the nazi exploitation films Salon Kitty and Deported Women of the SS... Uh, Beyond the Door 2, Tinto Brass's sexploitation epic Caligula, as well as two video nasties of his own, Argento's Tenebrae as the unhinged Bertie, and Antonio Margheriti's Vietnam splatter film The Last Hunter. Like his co-star Valentina Forte, he also went on to appear in Body Count as well. Karen Black makes a small appearance as Karen, and she'd previously appeared in Margheriti's Killer Fish, as well as Rob Zombie's later cult film, The House of a Thousand Corpses. And any fans of Cannibal Holocaust, they may notice that Luca Barbareschi plays Bud, the helicopter pilot in this film, and he'd appeared in Cannibal Holocaust as the cameraman Mark, which is kind of echoed in Cut and Run with Leonard Mann's character. Ottaviano dell'acqua makes a minor appearance as one of Vlado's men, and dell'acqua is mostly famous as the iconic zombie in Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters. And everyone kind of will remember this one. This is the zombie that comes out of the cemetery and bites Susan in the neck, and it went on to be one of the most memorable images in the film. It made it onto the American film poster and onto lots of the advertising as well. But apart from this, Delacqua had some appearances in uh, Polizio Tessi films like Violent Naples and The Big Racket, before going on into horror and exploitation, with appearances in Nightmare City, 2019 After the Fall of New York, Blast Fighter, a lead role in Rat's Night of Terror by Bruno Mattai, and also the two non-sequels of Zombie Flesh Eaters, which is known as Zombie 3 or Zombie 4 After Death. Director Ruggiero Diodato, of course, had done multiple video nasties. Cannibal Holocaust, Last Cannibal World, and House on the Edge of the Park as well. But he also had a hand in almost every popular genre, with a Polizio Teshi film, uh, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, which starred the late Ray Lovelock, Uh, post-apocalyptic Raiders of Atlantis, he did a slasher with Body Count, and a giallo with Phantom of Death. Dardano Sacchetti, who was the writer, has been mentioned before, and has been in almost everything that's Italian cult. Co-writer Cesar Fragoni, though, had worked on Barva's Rabid Dogs, as well as Sergio Martino's Jungle Romp trilogy, uh, Mountain of the Cannibal God, Isle of the Mutations, and The Great Alligator. Now, the person who did the soundtrack might sound familiar... It's Claudio Simonetti, who was formerly in the band Goblin, and he'd worked on many Italian delights, like Deep Red, uh, the really, really beautiful, iconic Suspiria soundtrack, uh, the equally iconic Dawn of the Dead soundtrack, uh, Tenebrae, Conquest, Demons, Hands of Steel, Body Count, Opera, House of Witchcraft, House of Lost Souls, and even Nightmare Beach in 1990. He continues to score modern films like Argento's Mother of Tears and he also had a hand in Shaun of the Dead by Edgar Wright. Alberto Spagnoli worked on the cinematography of Cut and Run which was his last film before his untimely death later in 1985 and he'd worked on multiple other pictures like The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, uh, Beyond the Door 2, Killer Fish and also Joe D'Amato's Black Orgasm. The editor from Short Night of the Glass Dolls, Mario Mora, he also worked on this film, while the special effects guy from Last Cannibal World, Eaten Alive and Mountain of the Cannibal God, Paolo Ricci, he also worked on Cut and Run. Now Ricci had a vast repertoire of work in Italian exploitation. He'd worked on Martino's Isle of the Mutations, The Great Alligator, The Scorpion with Two Tails and After the Fall in New York... He also worked on Fulci's Black Cat, Lensi's Iron Master, and also Lamberto Barber's Blast Fighter. After Cut and Run, he went on to work on Hands of Steel, as well as Against Nature, or The Green Inferno, which we've covered previously. But by this point, he got much less graphic and had a lot more subt- in a, worked in a much more subtle capacity. Assistant Director Marina Matoli, she'd previously worked with Deodato on his film Raiders of Atlantis while Alessandro Fracassi, who produced the Mondo film Sweet and Savage, would, w- w- went on to produce Cut and Run, as well as Body Count for Deodato. Fricassi would later become an associate producer on the horror film An American Haunting, which starred Donald Sutherland and Sissy Spacek. Released in 1985 in Italy, the film didn't really have a US release until 1986 the following year, where it made a relatively healthy box office gross – but the VHS version in the UK was released in 1985, by Medusa Video, and they were already in trouble for releasing Joe D'Amato's nasty film, Absurd. The Medusa VHS version was reportedly uncut, but it's difficult to know what print was actually used. In an interesting side note to how this film was shot, the violent scenes were shot with both hard versions and softer versions. The original hard uncut version had the extremely graphic deaths and the special effects present, but the softer version used alternative shots altogether that were filmed slightly differently, and that masked a lot of the violence and made it a lot less intense. This softer version was the print that ended up playing in the US, but there's no information on whether it's the US print that ended up on the UK VHS. Had the film been made earlier and released during the furore, the uncut version would have absolutely been seized immediately due to its notoriety and its relation to Deodato and the other cannibal films. Very unfortunately though, the film has not surfaced since this 1985 VHS. ...and it remains unreleased on modern DVD and the Blu-ray era. But there is an uncut release in uh, the US with the hardcore sequences restored... ...but some of these scenes are from the Italian cut... ...and they're presented with Italian audio and English subtitles. Despite these scenes existing with English audio... ...the releasing company were unable to locate the sound files... ...and so they had to release it with the Italian audio instead... This is the most complete version of the film to release anywhere in the UK or the US, which is a shame really, as it's just dying for a crisp uncut re-release. And that was Cut and Run, My Little Pretties, and it's the end of the show again for this week. So as always, thanks to everybody for listening to me gas on for ages. I do hope you've enjoyed hearing, though, about these two near nasties. But if you've got any feedback on these films, please do get in touch. I'd love to hear what any of you guys think. You can reach me on nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch via Twitter or Facebook. On Facebook, just look for Nasty Pasty Podcast, And on Twitter, I'm on at NastyPastyPod. Now, next week, we have two new horror films that I know a lot of people are going to like. And there's certainly a couple of my favourites. We're going back to school next week for two school-based slasher pictures. They are the Spanish slasher epic Pieces by Juan Percur Simon and the British splatter picture Slaughter High by George Dugdale, Mark Ezra and Peter Litton. Both of them are set in schools, both of them delightfully gruesome and silly at the same time, and they're a whole load of nasty. But join us next week for these two slashes. But for now, take care, and of weeders eh.